Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You guys may take your seat. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you with a humble heart, knowing who you are and who we are not. Lord, I simply ask that you remove anything of myself so that you might shine forth and that your words uh, stand out to us this morning. May they fall on our ears and touch our hearts so that we might be able to take action. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So as just briefly reading through that, we are going to be speaking about wisdom. But I've titled this sermon Consumer Comparison. Now, I this past week just started a brand new job in a completely new industry, and it's in the retail industry, and the first week they slammed me with meetings, and they wanted me to get an experience of every part of the business, um, since I was new to the industry, new to the company, new to meeting everybody, and one of the coolest meetings I got to sit down in was with a potential new vendor, and the potential new vendor brought in all of their sample products for us to, uh, to see, um, for us to potentially switch over to using them to, uh, for shirts, wetsuits, swimwear, different things along those lines. And it was really awesome just to see them do the pitch, but more so to feel the product, to stretch the product, to try the product on, to really get to experience it. And one of the things I realized is that I was sitting there more detailed than everyone else, just pulling apart the material, checking it out, looking at the print, looking at how they did everything. And I was, I was looking at, you know, how does this compare to what I'm used to? How does this compare to what I like? And what I really realized through not just this position that I'm entering in, but from my previous position as well, is that we're all do consumer comparisons. You see, we want the best products, we want the best value, we want the best price whenever that we are shopping for something. And there's businesses that have made their entire, entire business model around this. You, many of you have heard of consumer reports. This is all they do, is do uh, consumer comparisons. When you go shopping for a car, uh, you look at two different cars and you size them up next to each other. When you're shopping in the store and you're looking at the two different milks, you're looking at the calories, you're looking at the additives, you're looking at, oh, this has 50% more calcium. Whatever it is, you're always constantly comparing what you're getting ready to purchase. Why? It's because research can save you a lot of money and a lot of time. Now, that is a lesson that many of us have learned the hard way. Um, The first house that my wife and I bought right when we got married, um, it was this cute little tiny uh, house in New Jersey right by the beach. And we were so in love with the house that anything that came up on the inspection report is, oh yeah, no problem, we'll take care of that later down the road. And we didn't take a deep look into it. 
And so the first week that we moved in, um, we found mice. So we had to deal with mice right from the beginning. I looked back when we were selling the house and I realized, oh yeah, that was in the report that there was mice droppings found. But I didn't even think, oh, it's mice, you know? So then hiring an exterminator, coming and get, getting that taken care of. Um, just a little bit down the road, our sewer lines uh, clogged with the roots of the tree and it backed up completely into our bathrooms. And so we had like this like disgusting stuff from the sewer all in our bathrooms. And it was because the, the, we didn't properly check all of the plumbing. And it was just going to be a couple months later that winter hit and it hit two degrees outside. And the plumber that did all the work on our house prior to us moving in routed the hot water lines outside and then back into the crawl space and back into the house. And so all of our lines froze, burst, and my crawl space became an ice skating rink. And we had no hot water <laughs> for a week while we had got it all repaired and waited for everything to thaw out. And it became a costly disaster. And uh, it was it an was interesting first couple months of home ownership. <laughs> and uh, it, it, truly, we, we moved into our new house and we're like, let's get a house that we don't have to do any work on. <laughs> um, that, was, that was our plan going into it. And of course, it didn't work out the way that you know, we planned, but we got there. But consumer comparison, we find ourselves comparing and doing the research and doing everything before we make a purchase, usually big purchases. Um, but do we do that with our own Christian life? And do we do that and look at what the truth of the word, you know, really is? And our biblical knowledge and our biblical research should ultimately re lead us to wisdom. And that's the topic of today. We're going to be looking at a comparison, a side-by-side -side comparison of wisdom. And I know it's kind of hard for you guys to see. I kind of, uh, number one, my writing is absolutely terrible. Um, but number two, all the words that I'll be writing onto the board, they are all... Um, in the text that we're going to be reading, so it's going to be easier for you guys to follow once we begin. But we're going to be comparing wisdom from the world versus wisdom from above. And we're going to do a side-by-side -side comparison, just like James does throughout this text, of wisdom from the world and wisdom from above. But in order to do that, we first need to define what wisdom is. So if we go back to verse 13 and we look at A, uh, verse 13 the part A, we're going to break it into two different pieces. And it says, who is wise and understanding among you? He's posing that question out. And he says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Let him show by good conduct. You see, wisdom is not mere head knowledge. We see the definition of wisdom right here. It's the skilled application of knowledge. You might know somebody that is extremely head smart. And you might look at them as being wise. But wisdom is actually applied knowledge. And it's not just the application of knowledge. It's the skilled application of knowledge. It's doing it the way that it is supposed to be done. And that is going to be the true test. He says, let him show. That's what Paul says. Let him show his knowledge applied. True wisdom is going to be done by the actual actions that you are going to be taking. You see, it has nothing to do with a diploma. It has nothing to do with a thousand leather-bound uh, books that you have in your library when you sit at your office. It has nothing to do with these things. It has everything to do with what you are personally doing, how you are personally showing. You see, I love, I'm not a great golfer, but I love great sports stories. And uh, many of you guys know Arnold Palmer. 
um, maybe from the drink or maybe because you are a goth fanatic. But I was watching a uh, interview and documentary on his life and it was talking about all the different influences in his life. And he says, one of the main influences I had was my father. And the interview goes, what was the greatest thing that you learned from your father? And what he said was, it was shocking. His father told him, don't ever tell anybody how good you are or how much you know about golf. Show them. See, it's one thing to tell somebody that you know all this, and it's one thing to, to show how much knowledge you have, but that's not going to win Arnold Palmer any Masters tournaments. Telling somebody doing it, you actually have to go and do it. See, wisdom is knowing it and then applying what you know in a real-life scenario. You see, when you look at wisdom, there's tons of different people that came to mind. I, I, I'm going to admit it. I just started watching uh, the Star Wars series, so you have Yoda. Um, I, I feel like I was missing out for so long, and now I'm actually like understanding why people are obsessed with it. Um, but then there's guys in philosophy that are like Socrates. And it's quite funny is that Socrates never wanted to be known as a wise man. He never called himself wise. He didn't want anything to do with the word wise man. You see, he called himself a friend to wisdom, but he never called himself wise. And many philosophers, they call themselves friends to wisdom, but they don't call themselves wise. It's, a, it's an interesting thing because wisdom is actually an attribute of God. It is not something that we have on our own. It's an attribute of God. And if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, um, it's going to be right up here for you. It says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. You see, whenever we study wisdom and when we personally study the history of wisdom throughout the, the Bible, you'll see that it's very rarely ascribed to a man. Wisdom, except for a couple times, is always ascribed to God. And the couple times that wisdom is ascribed to a man, right after that, the man is saying that his wisdom is from God. And so wisdom everywhere in the Bible relates directly back to God. And the Jews know this more than anybody. I used to work in an Orthodox uh, Jewish-owned company. And so I was immersed in uh, the life of Judaism. And they will never refer to themselves as having any sort of wisdom. Because only God is wise. Is that how they look at it? And it's a very interesting take on it as I'm getting ready to teach us how we can be wise. But these are all attributes that we need to put on or things that we need to stay away from. But we have to understand that the only true wisdom is going to be coming from God and God alone. He's the one that is going to empower us to do these different things. You see, Paul takes another look at it, and it's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, it's going to be verses 4 and 5, another way that he describes this type of wisdom. And it says, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. I'm going to stop right there. He is writing to the church of Corinth. And at that time, that church was uh, surrounded in a ecosystem or a lifestyle where everybody wanted to be wise. Everybody wanted to be a philosopher. Everybody wanted these powerful words, and they were looking for this in Paul. And he says, and in my speech and in my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul himself 
as we'll see, attributes all wisdom to the power of God. So let's first recognize that wisdom is not something that we can attain by ourselves unless it's going to be wisdom from the world. We can attain wisdom from the world, but it's much more difficult to obtain wisdom from above and carry out the wisdom from above. And so what we are going to do is, as we continue, we're going to break this into a side-by-side -side comparison. And I broke into three different points. The first thing that we're going to look at that Paul uh, really points out is going to be the actions and attitude. Okay? So we're going to be looking at the wisdom from the world and comparing it with the wisdom from above. And the first section we're going to be looking at is actions and attitude. And in verse 13, it says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. The very first two uh, things that we see under actions and attitude is going to be from wisdom from above. The first one that we see is good conduct. I'm sure many of you guys have heard this verse before, but let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. All of our good works are supposed to glorify ultimately God in heaven. You see, good conduct is basically practicing what you're preaching. Whatever I'm up here preaching to you guys is something that I should be carrying out and it should look like good conduct. You see, a lack of wisdom is going to point not to God, not your good works to God, but it's going to point your good works to yourself. That is a lack of wisdom. Real wisdom is going to point all of your good conduct directly to God. And the second thing that he says under our actions and attitudes is meekness. And it's very key to understand exactly what this word meekness is defined as. And it's, it's power under control. Now, this isn't the little lady um, in the office that you work with that doesn't really talk and she's really shy. It's, it's not that. It's, it's an actual uh, power that someone has that's completely under control. And this, this verbiage here is described as a wild horse who is tamed. That tamed wild horse still has the exact same power that it had before it was tamed, but now it's under control. Another way of looking at this is in a debate. Um, it's, it's somebody that once the debate really starts heating up and really starts, you know, someone starts acting and getting angry and yelling at that person, that person is able to remain calm, cool, and collective throughout the debate and still push his views without letting somebody else uh, control their way that they act. Now, this is very interesting for myself because when I look at debates and who I find myself debating with, it's usually with somebody that's close to me, somebody that I feel comfortable with. So it's, it's usually my sisters. It's usually my, my family. It's usually my wife. And the, the best part about meekness is I realize is that I have absolutely none whatsoever. So my debate quickly turns into a strong fellowship because of something that I'm going to say. Then if I'm truly honest with myself and I take a look at myself, my mindset, which I won't speak to my wife, I'm going to have her close her ears right now, is if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. So if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. And when I want you to speak, I want you to support my opinion in my debate. I don't want to hear what you have to say. 
And so it creates this strong fellowship. It creates a fight. And if I am true with myself, I don't have meekness because I get all fired up if she says something that's not my opinion. You see, meekness is one of these things that's really hard to do. But if we look at it from our perspective of what God has gifted us with, you see, God gave us all gifts and talents, and we're all different depending on who we are and uh, whatever it may be. But the idea is that God gave us this gift that we need to surrender back to him. That gift that God gave us, it's not for us. It's not for our own power. It's a gift that we need to surrender back to him. We basically need to hand God back the reins of our life. Hey, God, you're ultimately in control. You've given me gifts. You've given me power. You've given me these different things. But I am going to place it back in your hands and in your control so that I can do what you want me to do. You see, as we go through this list and we look at uh, the wisdom from above, they're going to be more challenging than the side of wisdom of this world. And now we're getting ready to look at verse 14 and take a look at this wisdom from the world and uh, look at the actions and attitude. But it's verse 14. It reads, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. The very first thing that we're going to see is bitter envy. Now, this is a uh, word that describes almost like a jealousy. Um, the idea of this word is that it's very corrosive. And so it's going to eat from the inside out. Now, bitter envy. I've heard it described this by a couple different people. It's drinking poison, hoping that it kills somebody. You are drinking the poison, hoping that it's going to ultimately kill somebody. You see, you have a desire to see somebody destroyed. That's what bitter envy is. But in reality, we should have somebody learning. We should have somebody being pushed towards repenting. We shouldn't be pushing somebody towards destruction. But bitter envy wants to see somebody absolutely destroyed. You see, have you ever been rubbed the wrong way? Have you ever been offended by somebody? Have you ever been hurt by somebody? Have you ever been wronged by somebody? And you get this bitter envy. You get this anger inside of you, and you feel it in your gut. And maybe you tend to let it go, and you forget about it. But a couple weeks later, you're in a conversation with a friend, and that person mentions that person's name. Does it come back to your gut? Does it come back to your insides? Maybe the person you're in conversation with doesn't just mention their name. They sing a praise about that person. That's like the ultimate worst. When you, when you have like this thing against somebody and they've hurt you and they've rubbed you the wrong way and then you're having a conversation and you're hearing everybody praise how awesome this person is that hurt you and you're like, oh, if only you knew. And you have inside of you this, this desire to see somebody destroyed. You want them to get, you want, you want God, you know, vengeance is the Lord's. And you're like, Lord, you punish that guy. Make it, make it terrible, whatever he's going to get, whatever it is, I want to see him destroyed. That's bitter envy. And it seems very, very harsh, but if we look at all these different things, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we got to evaluate, is this something that's inside of me? Is this something that is, uh, you know, really there? And so in verse 14, it says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking, the second one is self-seeking. This is one that I tend to easily find myself doing. Self-seeking. Self-seeking 
has the idea of selfish ambition. Now, ambition is not a bad thing on its own. It's great to be ambitious. It's great to want to better yourself, to have a better job environment, to have a provide more for your family, to have goals that you're trying to accomplish. Ambition is a fantastic thing when it's not tied to selfishness, when it's not all about yourself. Because if you have selfish ambition, you tend to display yourself before the truth. Yourself is on display before the truth is. You see, really, this self-seeking is a heart problem because you tend to side with yourself over Jesus. And if you have self-seeking inside of you, you care more about yourself and you're putting yourself before everything else. Yourself, you become an idol to yourself and you're putting yourself before Jesus and it not only affects your own personal relationship with God first, but it affects your relationship with everybody else. The next thing that we say, that we see in verse 14, and it says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. That's what's going to be happening next. Boast and lie. You see, all boast and lie really is, it's arrogance. It's pride. It's deceit. You see, I love Texans, how they have like this, these certain expressions, and they use this expression that it's all hat and no cattle. This guy is dressed and looking like a cowboy. You would think that he's a cowboy, but he's got nothing behind him. He works a job in an office and doesn't do anything. But on weekends, he goes out and he looks like that. You know, he sits at home with his boots and he scuffs them up to make it look like, you know, he's working, but he's all hat and no cattle. That's what this is. You're boasting in line. You're putting on a perception for somebody. You're showing something. You have this arrogance of who you really are. But guess what? You're not them whatsoever. You're lying. You're boasting in something that you're not. You see, as Christians, every single one of these things, it's hard for us to say, yeah, this defines me. Because it shouldn't. And it's hard to say, yeah, I have bitter envy. I have self-seeking. I, I tend to boast. I tend to lie. Those are things that it's, it's hard for us to admit. Why? Because we don't look as a Christian as those things as defining us. But if we are true to ourselves, that these things might be small, subtle things in our lives. Small, subtle things in our lives. And the time that they are going to get really out of control is if we become lazy in our relationship with God. And as we become lazy in our relationship with God, our bitter envy is going to grow. And our self-seekingness is going to continue to grow. We might become more of a person um, with pride and arrogance and deceit if we allow our relationship to be lazy with God. You see, the next thing that we're getting ready to look at is the different characteristics between wisdom from the world and wisdom from above, and it's going to continue us into uh, verse 15 as we look at all these different characteristics. And it says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now, these are pretty heavy things. The very first thing we see is earthly. It's very important to make sure that when you guys see that word earthly, that we're not talking about saving trees and driving a Prius. Um, it has nothing to do with that all, at all. Although I love trees and I love the environment, we're going to go a different direction with that. And uh, the idea here is that we only take into account things of this world. 
We're not taking into account anything of God. We're only taking into account things of this world. And for me, the word that comes to mind is secular. And it's, it, the word secular usually tends to just get to, to put on music. It's a style of music, secular music. But that's not it at all. Secular is just an adjective that describes the type of music that you're listening to. The actual the word secular means of the day. That's what it means. It means a worldly standard of what's going on in this particular time in our culture. Of the day. You see, it's a level that we tend to see things as, as human beings. We tend to see ourselves in the environment. We tend to see ourselves in the society that is around us. We tend to relate to people that are in the world because maybe we work with them. We encounter them every single day while we're driving. We encounter them every single day when we're grocery shopping. Oh, man. That's a grocery shopping. Um, that, that was a tough one for me this morning. It must have been that extra, that less of an hour. Um, but we tend to live on earth in an earthly environment, so we can tend to see ourselves wisdom of the world, finding ourselves as the characteristic, as having our minds set on earthly things. The next thing that we saw was sensual. And I feel that in our, uh, the way that our life, or, you know, our children are being grown up in the, the, the times of the days, I think this word is, is truly important. It's sensual. And this is the uh, immaterial. So what that means is this is the, the inner person inside of you. Whether you label it as a spirit or soul, whether you're a dichotomous or trichotomist and you think they're the same, whatever it may be, it's your inner person. And I got really tired of hearing, oh, that's my spirit animal. But that's basically what you know society is saying. Like This is the exact same thing. You tend to relate with how you feel about this certain topic. You see, life without God, you're looking for answers within. You're not looking for answers with God. So if you don't have God in your life, you tend to find yourself looking inside for your answers. That's what this word means, essential, is that you're looking for how it makes you feel. Well, it doesn't feel right. To me, that is like one of like the hardest things to hear somebody say. It doesn't feel right. Well, you see, truth is not concerned about your feelings. And it's really important to understand that, that truth is not concerned with your feelings. Truth is truth. The word of God is the word of God. So it has nothing. If you feel like, oh, no, I, I read that and, you know, it sounds great, but it's not truly how I'm feeling right now. So I don't want to, that doesn't really relate to me. So I'm going to put that off until I'm feeling like doing that. That is the absolute worst thing you could do, is tend to side with your feelings over what the truth is. And that's what this word sensual basically is saying, is that, is that you tend to go look in yourself how it makes you feel, how it makes you want to be, who you want to be, instead of looking at the truth of God's word and what we should be doing. The third thing, and it seems to be, uh, you know, the most scary because of the word, it's demonic. This is a very heavy word, and if you look at it in the Greek, it doesn't make it any lighter. It says, proceeding from demons. That's what this word means in the Greek, proceeding from demons. Now, how many of you or heard anybody say this, um, what can Satan teach me today? 
that's not something that you should hope to ever hear. Um, I don't even know anybody that would actually ever think that, but that's a strong statement. That's what this word demonic is really inferring is, is what am I hoping to learn from Satan today? Unless you're a witch um, or a, war, uh, a warlock, not a wardrobe. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you probably won't be asking that. But if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, it brings it more into our own lives. And it's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Um, it's gonna be, there we go. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That's in the New Testament. That is a very scary statement that some will depart from the faith. People of the church are going to depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I guarantee you that anybody that departs from the faith that this verse is speaking about never went into it with the thought of what can Satan teach me today? Why? Because Satan is clever. He is the great deceiver. He knows how to lure you out of it. You see, every single person in this room can be influenced. And so the question is, is what are your influences? And if you are not careful to watch what is influencing you and who you are following as being an influenced person, you can find yourself quickly going down a road that God never intended you to go down. Also, doctrine of demons and deceiving spirits is usually the easier way to go most of the time. And so our flesh and our desires, they tend to go towards that. And it never comes in the appearance of what can Satan teach me, but you find yourself being taught these deceiving ways. So we look at these different characteristics. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. Those are very heavy things. And we continue to build our list. And even under the actions and attitude, bitter envy, self-seeking, boasting, and lying. It's not a list as we continue to build that I want to be known as. The next thing that we're getting ready to go in, we're actually going to skip the characteristics of wisdom from above. And we're going to go directly into the results of the wisdom of the world. And it's verse 16, if you guys want to go back with me to James. And it says... For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So what are the results of your actions and attitude and characteristics of wisdom of the world? The very first thing that we see is confusion. You see, confusion and every, I'm going to go ahead and write that too. Every evil thing. Confusion and every single evil thing. That seems really harsh, doesn't it? Um, it does seem harsh, but it is, it is the reality that we live in. And uh, so let's first look at confusion. Um, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 33, and it reads this. We'll get there. There we go. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. For God is not the author of confusion. We have a God that does not intend for us to be confused. You see, confusion is terrible for the church. 
Our God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of order. We see that later on in the same exact chapter in verse 40. Um, He is a God of order. And then the very next thing that we see is every evil thing. We're going to go and take a look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses uh, 16 through 19. But this, this, this little phrase, every evil thing, to me this is like the absolute like worst little phrase that you could add in and describe something as. Every single evil thing that it is. And I think that this is a great uh, verse that illustrates everything. It's not every single thing, but it's a great verse that does. It says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. To me, this is like one of the most convicting verses ever, but I want to concentrate more so on the very last thing that is there because I feel like this is what runs rampant in the church and can cause you know, the most harm. It says, and one who sows discord among the brethren. For me, this is such an evil thing. Discord is, I feel like, one of the most damaging things that the church uh, has. You see, discord and decisiveness and backbiting and gossip All these things destroy a church. And the church takes a very strong stance on things that destroy the church. You have two options. You can repent and have grace and mercy given to you. Or you can get out. You don't belong in the church. The church does not want you. You see, for a sheep, they deserve the grace and the mercy once there is repentance. You see, somebody that doesn't want to repent, they're a wolf. And what does a wolf do? They eat sheep. And they destroy the church. And so the church has to take a very strong stance and say, listen, either you're a sheep and you're repenting and you get the grace and the mercy of God, or you are a wolf and you need to get out. And it's a very, very serious thing. But when you take a look at every evil thing in confusion, these things are not of God. Because our God is a God of order, complete opposite of confusion. Our God has no evil in him whatsoever. So if these things are not of God, they need to be seriously rid of the church. You see, it's so true. You are being influenced by something. But what is influencing you? That's the scary thing, is that the world has something to be taught. The world has something to preach to every single person in this room. You're out in the world, you're going to be getting preached something. What are you getting preached? Are you looking at it in light of your own Christian relationship and the truth of God, or are you going to end up being confused and full of every evil thing? You see, the next verse that we're getting ready to look at in James in chapter uh, 17 it's huge. It's going to go into the characteristics that we skipped on wisdom from above. And we look at it, it's verse 17, and it reads, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. You see, the characteristics, the first one is purity. I love this word because it's undiluted. This word means without folds. It's uncontaminated. It's uh, free from any ulterior motives. This word pure has nothing 
too high. I absolutely love that about that word pure. It's, it, it's undiluted, it's free of any ulterior motives, and it has absolutely nothing to hide. The next word that we see is peaceable. This word peaceable, it's, it's, it's peaceful with the understanding that you have a right relationship. So you're going to find peace in, a in, in the right relationship. And that first means that you have to have a first, a right relationship with God. And then once you have the right relationship with God bringing you peace, then that's going to transfer into your relationship with others, which should bring peace. Peace is one of those things that's it's hard to find. It's one of the things that I struggle with finding. I, I always found myself being torn between different things. That's not peace. Peace is having this right relationship where you don't feel torn, where it just feels comfortable, just feels right. The next word is gentle. This is turned into one of my uh, favorite words just because there's not much we know about it. Um, scholars believe that this is one of the most untranslatable words in the New Testament. It is extremely hard for them to actually translate the meaning of gentle. And so there's a bunch of different people that have different understandings and kind of context of what this means. Um, imagine this. It's a strict man realizing that there are certain times in which he should not be strict. That doesn't even make sense. A strict man is realizing, oh, there's certain times that I should not be strict. But he's defined as a strict man, but he should not be strict at certain times. That's what this word gentle means. Um, let me put it this way. There's a famous theologian named William Barclay, and he said, a gentleman knows how to forgive while being strict. He knows how to offer forgiveness, but at the same time, he is strict. To me, this is all counterintuitive. It doesn't make too much sense. But then when you actually put it in reference to something that Jesus did, hopefully this will clear it up a little bit. Do you guys remember the adulterous woman dragged to Jesus' feet? Guilty. Absolutely guilty. The Pharisees are like, okay, here you go, Jesus. Here's one for you. Here's a guilty, adulterous woman. What do you do? What does Jesus say? Hey, you've been forgiven. Go and sin no more. That's the word gentle. You've been forgiven. She's guilty. She deserves the punishment and the stoning that she was going to get. But guess what? Go and sin no more. He chose to be gentle in that time. You see, I look at it this way, and how can I relate this to my own personal life, is my discipline of my children. You know, one is only one years old, so it's kind of hard to discipline a one-year-old. I don't think they understand anything at that point. But my other one is getting ready to turn three this month, and he understands it. Like, he gets it. Like, he, he knows when he is being bad. He, he challenges me, like, beyond being challenged sometimes. He's the greatest little kid ever, but he knows how to challenge. He knows how to push buttons, and he knows when he does something wrong. And the one thing that we work on, like, so much with him is he absolutely, like, terrorizes our little one-year-old. I mean, we'll be running, he'll be running to get a soccer ball in our house, and the other one will be running the opposite direction, and you see him just do WWE clothesline. The little one's feet go out from underneath them, smack on his back, absolutely destroyed, and then you see him, he laughs and keeps running. <laughs> it's like, he knows what he did. The other one's crying, and then he said, and then I say, Ben, and what's the first thing he does? He sprints back over to his little brother and goes, oh, I'm sorry, Eastby, and hugs him. It's like he knows. It's like, it's like the whole routine. But there are times when I actually see him, you know, afflict 
harm and hurt on his brother, which he didn't intend. But once his brother starts crying, he knows that he did something wrong. Those are the times that he doesn't get a spanking. Those are the times he doesn't go to timeout. Those are the times that I choose to show him mercy and grace. You see, that's what gentle is. He's fully deserving. He hurt his brother. His brother's on the ground crying. He's fully deserving of this. But yet I decide to show mercy and grace. That's what gentle means. I absolutely love it because I am fully deserving of hell. (laughs) But ultimately, I have assurance that I get to go to heaven because of the work that Christ did for me. That is like the perfect picture of this word gentle. That's why I'm turning, um, this is like going to become one of like my most like favorite words. I feel like I got to do like a, like a 30-hour study, in-depth look. Um, there is, I, I read a quote about Aristotle. Aristotle did a study on the word gentle, and he made a statement about gentle. And I was going to use it today, but I realized I had to read it 14 times before I even started to understand where he was going with it. And so it's like it was way above my head, and I was like, yeah, I, can't, I can't teach this. I, I still don't get it. Um, but it's, it, it's gentle. It's gentle. It's one of, those, uh, one of those words. The next word that we see described is willing to yield. This word means teachable. Willing to yield. You're ready to learn. You're not stubborn in your own opinion. That's hard for me. I am one of the most stubborn people. I think it just comes like, it's like you're born into it in my family. Where every single one of us, like at our dinner table growing up, we all took a different stance on something and we all stood our ground no matter if we were wrong, if we were right, whatever it was, we stood our ground and we fought it until it just like, we came to a part of impasse where there is no moving forward whatsoever. And the idea that you have to be ready to learn, you see, if there is truth, you should listen. I'm going to say that again. If there is truth, you should be willing to yield. You should be willing to be corrected. So that means that you are no longer stubborn in your opinion. You are no longer going to take the stance. If you acknowledge and see that you are wrong, you need to be open to know what is right and to change your stance. That's what willing to yield is. The, the next two things that I'm going to lump in together as one is mercy and good fruits. And the reason why I'm lumping them together as one is because good fruits is a product of mercy. So mercy and good fruits. We look at good fruits as being the result of mercy, but ultimately kindness and good towards the afflicted, even if it is their fault. That's what this means. Kindness and good towards the afflicted, even if it is their own fault. Now, what I love about the church in this day and age that we're in right now, the church, the church really stands for social justice. And so you see all these different stances that the church is doing and all these different ministries that are coming out of social justice. And one of the ones that I've got to experience firsthand is the uh, uh, sex trafficking. It's one that I got to see in person. And it's one that I had, it was really, it's really, you know, on my heart a lot. And uh, the women and the children that are being in this, they need mercy and good fruits. But I'll never forget the first time that I experienced seeing 
children in, you know, in this atmosphere of sex trafficking and being moved and this absolutely terrible. And I was on my way back to the United States and I was on the airplane and I'm standing in line and there's, we're out of the country and there's Americans standing in front of me. And the guy turned around and asked me what was the youngest girl that I had slept with while I was there. And I almost like, just like, it, like someone actually grabbed me and escorted me out because I thought I was just gonna beat him to like death. And when you look at mercy and good fruits, that man, that John, needs mercy and good fruits shown to him. To me, this is like one of the hardest things to, to wrap your mind around. What did Jesus say? Forgive them for they have not, they do not know what they have done. How hard is that as a human being to wrap your mind around that? My wife was telling me um, a story about a lady um, whose uh, daughter was murdered by the husband. And in court publicly, after he was, you know, pled guilty and left, she went and hugged him and said, I forgive you to him. That is the showing of mercy and good fruits. It's easy to show mercy and good fruits to the ones that you feel like need it, but for the ones that you feel like they don't deserve it, how hard is it to show that type of mercy to them? You see, not a single person in this room deserves heaven. But it's through mercy and good fruits that every single one of us, and through the work that Christ did on the cross, we get that opportunity. To me, that is the definition of mercy and good fruits. I am not deserving. The people that I look at and they're just doing disgusting, they are not deserving, but they do not know what they do. They need to be shown mercy and good fruits. You see, the next thing that we see is without partiality. This means that you're undivided. But it's undivided in the sense that you know the course that God wants for you, and you stick to that course. And you don't find yourself partial to anything else because you understand the course that God has you on, and you stick to it. The next thing that we see is without hypocrisy. Holy smokes. I cannot spell. That says hypocrisy. <laughs> oh, man. Um, don't pretend to be something that you're not. It's so easy to pretend to be somebody that you're not. It's so easy to, to put on this outer appearance to everybody, and then when you go home in the confines of your own home and in privacy, you're something completely different. It's extremely simple to do that. Now, we're getting ready to fill in the last and final thing right here is the results of the wisdom from above. But if you just look at the two differences between the two, you have bitter envy, self-seeking, boast and lie versus good conduct and meekness. Then under the characteristics, you have earthly, sensual, and demonic versus purity, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and that says without hypocrisy is what we decided. Now, looking at the very final aspect of it. It's verse 18 where we're going to end here. And it's the results. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so we have the fruit of righteousness. And we have peace. 
You see, right living, which is righteousness, will produce fruit if we go through the prince of peace. That's if we are putting ourselves in what Christ wants us to do. Our righteousness is of Christ, and it's going to produce fruit. You see, a wise man makes peace. They don't create confusion. They don't create every evil thing. They create peace. A man at peace with God and others will ultimately produce righteousness. A man at peace with God and others will produce righteousness. That is the result of wisdom from above. It's going to be fruit of righteousness and peace that you may have. A complete contrast to these two. Confusion versus peace. Every evil thing versus the fruit of righteousness. I absolutely love how Paul broke it side by side so that we could get an inspection and then we can decide upon ourselves what we prefer. Do we prefer the wisdom of the world or do we prefer the wisdom from above? It's our final place that we're going to be in today and the worship band is going to come on out, but it's Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11, and I absolutely love how Paul describes this. It says, For this reason we also, since the day that we heard it, did not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. To me, this is the perfect description of a person that is carrying out wisdom. He is sitting here praying for us that we might have wisdom. And he says, listen, I did not cease to stop praying. If, to me, I think Paul is one of the wisest people that we see in the New Testament, if we look at this definition of wisdom, I do believe that he's one of the wisest people outside of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. And as we look at him, we look at his life and what he walked through and the the knowledge that he practically applied to his life. And so if we're looking at him as one of the wisest people and he's saying, listen, I have not ceased to stop praying for wisdom. How much more so should we be praying for ourselves for wisdom? How much more so should we be praying for each other for wisdom, for this lifestyle that carries out the knowledge of God? This is something that we should all be desiring and praying for. You see, there's the verse, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. When you seek you're eventually going to carry out. God's going to add everything onto you so that you can walk in the knowledge that he has given you. Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.